Welcome back to the Wedding Wisdom Podcast. We're up to episode 69, and my guest today is the amazing Ryan Hill of Apotheosis Events. If you look at the Apotheosis website, it looks like he started his company, and his very first job was the opening night of Hamilton, which is actually true. But these kind of things don't happen by mistake. As with every rise to prominence, there's a journey. And his is truly an extraordinary one. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the incredible Ryan Hill. Ryan Hill, how you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm terrific. I got to tell you something. The list of parties you've played for is astonishing. Listen to this list. The closing night of Rent, the opening night of Hamilton, the Tony Awards after party at Tavern on the Green for Hamilton, Shuffle Along, The Crucible, The Humans, Blackbird, Glass Menagerie, The Front Page. Let's back up a little bit. Sure. Tell me about your Broadway background, your musical background, your your background. Sure. I grew up in California, uh, in Sacramento. I was a musical theater kid. I was a swimmer in high school, but really musical theater was my thing. I did that in Sacramento. I started the children's theater like most people do. So, and I did musical theater on the weekends, and so that really drove me forward. And I, I went to a two-year school right out of high school called Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts, which is in Santa Maria, California. And it's a two-year certificate program that's really like an MFA, an active. It's run on an equity schedule, so you go to school Tuesday through Sunday. It's attached to an equity company. So if you work while you're in school, you get membership candidate point because you're working professionally on stage. So what a great idea. Yeah, it's great. I did summer stock in between my first two years at PCPA and I did it with a 17 year old Megan Hilty who ended up going on a big musical theater star. So that was a lot of fun to meet her when she was young and that's how we got to know each other. And we did Hello Dolly and Jesus Christ Superstar that summer. And then I moved in 2000 to go to a production of Angels in America in Ashland, Oregon, um, with Jim Edmondson, who was a, was a very famous West Coast director. And then I ended up working at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival that year, not in the acting company, just sort of in their campus. I worked in their box office and because I was living in Ashland doing Angels in America and I had the best time just being in that absolutely world-class Shakespeare Festival with three operating theaters. They do rep from usually October to through to the summer every year. Broadway caliber production quality. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And this town, Ashland, Oregon, really exists because of the festival. The festival is at the center of the town and the entire economy of this city really rests on the festival because people come from all over the world. So to work in that city and in that environment for a year was really great. And while I was there, I auditioned for the summer company at PCPA, which is the full-time professional theater after I graduated and got hired. So I went back and did Anything Goes and Gypsy and the worst job of my life. Which was? Covering all three of the men in a play called Death Trap by Ira Levin. Oh my God, I know that play. It's a great play and it was a great production, but being the standby for all three of the male leads was Holy an unbelievable cow. amount of dialogue to remember. It was basically just like a month and a half of stress. Did you go on at least once? As God, no. 
it would have just been, I would have been a mess. So I never had to do that, which was great. And at the end of that year, I had friends who were in a directing program at University of North Carolina School of the Arts. I was like a balletoman growing up. I loved ballet and I loved musical theater. And so Jerome Robbins became a kind of paragon for me. West Side Story, King and I, Bells Are Ringing, Gypsy, Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, he's the god. Yeah. And so I found out that the dean at North Carolina School of the Arts, Gerald Friedman, was Jerome Robbins' assistant. Assistant director or assistant choreographer or both? Assistant director. Okay. But interestingly, Jerry Robbins choreographed Billie Holiday's tap solo for Bells Are Ringing on Gerald before he taught it to Billie Holiday. Wow, that's great. So I found out about this directing program and Gerald took two students a year to study with him for two years. So I flew there, I auditioned, they accepted me as one of the two spots. The, the way that that program worked, you were in the acting program. Okay. You had to take the acting curriculum mm -hmm. along with the actors. Which kind of makes sense. It does, it, it makes perfect sense. And that was Gerald's whole philosophy was, unless you really understand what these people are doing, right. you can't really direct them in yeah, a way. You can't that, tell them what to do unless you've done it or you, you know what it's like. Yeah, exactly. So I started that in 2001. And by the time I was graduating in 2003, I had told Gerald, I don't think I want to be a director. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I think the right way. I don't direct in the way that you want me to direct, which is Gerald's philosophy for directing was really, you don't tell actors what to do. You don't want to walk in and give people line readings or tell them how they should do a scene. You kind of want to coax it out of them. You want to be a smart enough director to, to elicit a performance from them right. and to ask them questions that will get them there rather than feeding it to them. Mm -hmm. And I'm a really results-oriented person, so <laughs> it was very hard for me to do that. I kept wanting to just tell people, no, it's this, or, you know, the scene isn't working because of this. And I also found myself, you know, when we would do our directing projects, we had tickets were sold and things like that. So I kept wanting to talk to people about what the posters looked like and what the audience experience was and all of these things. So I said to Gerald, I don't think I want to be a director. I think I want to be a producer. I was just going to say, that sounds like the mind of a producer. Yeah. And he said, that's, he said, I think you can be a great director. I think that you are meant to be a producer. So he set me up with a bunch of interviews. I met with Margot Lyon, who was producing Hairspray at the time. Mm -hmm. And she said, I don't have anything in my office, but you have to meet Adam Epstein, who was her producing partner at Hairspray. I met Adam's number two, Lynn Shaw, and she hired me as an intern. So I moved to New York and I did what most people do. And I did a 40 hour a week unpaid internship gleefully. <laughs> They paid for my subway card and they bought me lunch every day. And I joined the ushers union so I could see Broadway shows. And Wait, which union? The ushers union. Oh, the ushers union. I didn't yeah. even know there was one. Yep. I would be at my internship from 10 to 6. I'd usher a Broadway show from 8 to 10.30. <laughs> and I had to make more money than that. So I, I started doing the overnight shift at the Parker Meridian Hotel. So I would go 10 to 6, 8 to 10.30, 11 to 7. Nothing like being 23. Nothing like being 23. <laughs> um, 
And I did that for like six months and I had the weekends off. I would just usher on the weekends. So I would catch up on sleep. And honestly, like I found it exhilarating. Like my mom thought I was going to die. Um, <laughs> I was like, this is the best. I'm working on Broadway. I get to see a Broadway show every night. And I do this hotel job that the great thing about a night shift is that usually, and I was at the Park Meridian for a very short time because their night audit is mm -hmm. a really tense experience. Oh, the audit, yeah. like crunching the numbers, the, the yeah. okay. You basically settle the books for the front desk and the both of the restaurants and then turn the system over for the next day. Typically a night audit can be very easy, but this night audit was a beast. And you really need an accountant, someone who's very detail oriented with numbers. That's what I would think. Yeah. So anyways, I left Parker Meridian pretty quick and went to a smaller hotel in Times Square called the Casablanca. It was like a 70 room property, small, easy. Right. The audit would take me an hour and a half. And then I would have the rest of that time to really relax. So that was like July to December. Um, and then I saw an ad for a receptionist position at a company called The Producing Office. That was Kevin McCollum and Jeffrey Seller who produced Rent and Avenue Q. And I had done a fellowship in between my years at School of the Arts and worked on Avenue Q at the Eugene O'Neill Center. So I was like, I already know the show, I know the team. If I can get a job as their receptionist, chances are I may be able to take on more responsibility. So I went to this interview and interviewed with their executive assistant, Michelle Pollack, and then went back for a second interview with their, um, kind of their CFO, Deborah Neer, mm -hmm. and got the job. And on my first day, Michelle said, I haven't told Kevin and Jeffrey yet, but I'm planning on leaving in April. And I hired you because you were the only person I thought could take over for me. No guarantees, but I think that you can do what I do. So I'm just going to, I'm going to give you more responsibility directly with them so they can get to know you. That's flattering as hell. Yeah, I did it. And pretty quickly, you know, they, they were great. They would buy me tickets to shows and then they'd have me write papers about what worked, what didn't work, what was going on with the numbers, what their capacity was, what they took in. Basically Playbill releases all of the numbers for every Broadway show. So they would ask me what was going on with the numbers for the show, how that corresponded to what I felt about the show and things like that. And so I developed a relationship with them pretty quickly. And when Michelle left, I ended up taking over for her. So what was your official title at that point? Executive assistant. Okay. To both of them. The group of people who were at that office at that time, mm -hmm. we all refer to it as the platinum years because <laughs> Kevin and Jeffrey were so prolific in that period yeah. in that we had rent running avenue q was just about to win the tony award then we did irving berlin's white christmas high fidelity the drowsy chaperone and then about a year and a half into my tenure with them jeffrey said i want you to schedule a meeting with jill Furman. she's going to bring in some guys who are writing this musical called in the heights no and so I schedule this meeting and I open the door one day, I click open the door and in walks a young Lin-Manuel Miranda, Tommy Kale, Bill Sherman, Alex Lacamoire, the whole team. Wow. And we had, and Jill, and we started working on In the Heights. And I went to this reading at Manhattan Theater Club and that musical was totally different at this reading. Like it was so obvious that something was happening, right. but it was a completely different story. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. 
that musical changed and grew exponentially. We worked on it for four years before we opened it off Broadway and eventually on Broadway. Wow. Uh, which is normal. That's about the, the life of a musical, yeah. usually. And that office is where my life as an event planner began because I was always producing readings or workshops or events at Kevin or Jeffrey's homes for their families or for friends of theirs. Eventually, you know, when we started producing Irving Berlin's White Christmas, we were doing it the first year in San Francisco. Right. At the current. And I'm from Sacramento, California. And I really wanted to make sure that I could go. Yeah. You know, because not everybody in an office goes when a show opens out of town. Right. Um, and I usually did because I had to take care of Kevin and Jeffrey. So I asked if I could work on the opening night. And they said yes, which meant then I had to go. And I did that the next year when we were in San Francisco, LA, and Boston. So I had to do like a whistle stop tour of all of the yeah. opening nights. I would sort of fly successfully and get them all open. And what happened was I started producing these parties. And then we opened High Fidelity on Broadway. You know, I hadn't done something that big yet. And Jeffrey was like, I'm gonna hire an event producer planner and you can work with them and we'll see how that goes. Did that, was a great party, but not totally my responsibility. Then in the Heights came around and I said, I wanna do this. We don't need to give away the money to an event planner. I said, just let me do this. And so I hired someone to do the design work who we, I had right. worked with on High Fidelity, which was a guy named Devin Delano. And we did this great big party at Pier 60. Big success. And I did the In the Heights Tony party at Hudson Terrace. People started saying, these parties are the best parties anyone's throwing on Broadway. And so I kind of was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, this is really fun. And it, it's a mashup of everything I love to do. Sure. The part of the story I, I don't usually tell is that at that point, I was a little bit up against the glass ceiling in within the producing office in that some producers will let you start joining producing teams and fundraising from within the office and become another producer in the office. But Kevin and Jeffrey's philosophy, which I totally support, was more like if you want to produce and you want to be above the title, then it's really time for you to move on. And, you know, I didn't grow up with money. I didn't grow up knowing people with money. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, what am I going to do? And so I went to the ad agency that we had worked on all of our shows with. And I said to them, hey, you know, I end up having to call your team a lot when I'm producing these parties because I need collateral and I need creative and I'm on the phone with your team all the time. So what if you brought me in house and I could be a party planning offer for all of your clients and you guys do press launches or anything like that, I could be an in-house producer. And then that additional money that you would pay a party planner would just come back to the agency. And they really loved the idea, but they couldn't do it at the time uh, because they were in the middle of being bought. And exactly at that same moment, Gerald Friedman, who was my mentor at School of the Arts, mm -hmm. came to me and said, do you know the movie Center Stage, which is the ballet movie that Nick Heitner made yeah, yeah. in 2000? And I said, sure, I love that movie. And he said, well, Ethan Stiefel, who plays Cooper Nielsen in that movie, has just accepted the job as the Dean of Dance at North Carolina School of the Arts, where, which was my alma mater. This is in 2008. Right. And he needs someone to run the school with him, like an executive director. 
artistic director, executive director. Do you know anybody? And I was like, oh, I don't know if I know anybody, but why not me? <laughs> Ethan and I had a dinner. And at the end of the dinner, he said, you're the guy. I want you to do this. So in the fall of 2008, I moved back to North Carolina and was the assistant dean of the School of Dance for three and a half really, because I came back to New York in the spring of 2008. Now, were you a dancer yourself? No. Okay. I mean, I danced in musicals because I could move mm -hmm. well, but I was never a dancer, not like Ethan is or yeah, his yeah. wife, Leander. Right. So I went down there and I took over a producing job. I would fundraise for the school. I would produce our three shows, three big main stage performances, plus the smaller performances. And then, you know, parties and galas when I needed to. So the event planning thing kept going, but in a different context. And then Ethan went to Royal New Zealand Ballet in 2011. And I moved to the city. I really thought at that point, like, I don't want a job where anyone's going to call me or I have any responsibilities. So I thought I'm just going to get a job waiting tables for a little, which worked for one night. <laughs> I trained at Cafe Luxembourg on the Upper West Side, which is my, one of my favorite restaurants. For one night, ironed my apron and brought it in to Morgan, who was the GM at the time. And I said, this is not for me. I thought it was. I thought this is what I wanted. It's not. So I, I went to the agency, the same agency, and I said, hey, I'm around, what's going on? At the same time, a headhunter called me and said, hey, we heard you're back in New York. We have a very wealthy couple who are looking for an executive assistant to run their orchestra and the two homes that they have. So I took that job, which was really fun. And I went to London and recorded with the London Phil. All sorts of really interesting stuff happened with this family that I worked for for almost a year. And then I had kept in touch with the agency um, called FACO. And then their uh, head of their agency, Drew Hodges, called me and said, we've just been bought by another company. The new CEO wants to start an events division. I think you two should meet. We had a great breakfast meeting. He said, I need someone who knows all of the players on Broadway and can introduce me around. And I want to start an events division. And I think you're the, the guy. Wow. So I took that job. Literally everything falling into place like dominoes. Yeah, it just, you know, I, my thing is, is I can't push. I'm kind of designed to respond. <laughs> right. So I find I have more flow when I let it kind of come to me naturally. Right. The right things just tend to come. So at any rate, I took this job. I did my first party with them was Hat on the Hutton Roof with Scarlett Johansson. Then I did the opening of the revival of Cinderella for Joel Furman, Robin Goodman, Stephen Kosas. And I came up with this idea while I was working for them, because the truth of the matter is, even though most people will say this isn't true, but it is, <laughs> most Broadway producers don't really want to spend a ton of money on part. I am blessed in that the ones that I work with want to throw big, great parties. Okay. So I am blessed with party budgets usually, or for the most part, they don't want to throw a lot of money into parties because it's a one night thing and their goal is to make money, to pay back their investors and then start making money. Yeah. So I came up with this idea and was introduced to an entertainment person at a company called Gilt, G-I-L-T, which was an online fashion, started as a luxury fashion retailer, um, but had since expanded into city and home and the city division was about experiential. So I had this meeting with the Guilt team and I said, I think what we should do is I should try and convince a Broadway producer to open up their opening night to your members 
and your members would buy tickets. So you would sell the tickets at a higher price. You would give them access to the show and the party, and it would offset your costs. The guilt team was like, we love it. Let's try and make it happen. And then a week later, they called and they said, hey, we have a more interesting question. Why don't you come work for us? We love the idea and we just think you have entertainment contacts that we need. And, you know, at the time, Gilt was a big tech startup. They had just had a a new CEO join their team named Michelle Peluso. And Michelle was headed towards an IPO for that company. And when they made me an offer, they offered me equity in the company. And I was like, when in my life am I ever going to get an equity offer from a tech company? So I took the job and I joined their team in the entertainment sales division, did that. And what happened is because people knew I was back in New York, I kept getting hired to do parties. So I did Sting's The Last Ship when Sting wrote that musical, yeah, The yeah, Last yeah, Ship, sure. yeah. which Jeffrey Feller produced. Then I did another party and then Hamilton came. That was in August of 2015. And so when he called and said, I want you to do Hamilton, I had this feeling like event planning was what I was really supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And I loved Guilt, but I really was like, I want to do this thing. And I want to do it not on top of my work at Guilt. Hamilton was already huge and was just getting bigger. And I felt like if I could say that I was the guy who did the premiere of Hamilton, that maybe something would come out of that. Yeah. And so that's when I formally formed Apotheosis, then did the opening night of Hamilton on Broadway. Sort of fall of 2015, I do Hamilton. Then in the winter, I got a call from another executive producing team who gave me four shows, four premieres within the next four months. And I, I had made a deal with myself at Guilt that if I ever got to a certain number of contracts signed, that I would put my notice in. And it just happened a lot faster than I thought it was going to. But I said, this is one of those things that you have to do. It's when you say you're going to move to New York, you have to move. Yeah. But some people are like, oh, I have to get a certain amount of money in the bank. And I'm like, no, you just have to you have come and make it work. If you wait too long, you miss it. Right. So I thought, okay, I have to do this. So now you're leaving the equity shares of Guilt. and It was clear at that by that point that Guilt wasn't going to do an IPO. Mm-hmm. They'd just been bought by Hudson Bay Company, who owns Saks Fifth Avenue. Wow. And yeah. when they were acquired... Hudson Bay paid everybody out for the value of their share. Okay. So I got a little bonus. Yeah. And I had from January through July of that year, like I knew what was coming. Then it just kept coming. When you officially opened Apotheosis was? August of 2015. And the very first thing you did was? Hamilton. Is it my imagination or is it perpetual motion? There's always somebody moving, something moving, even if it's a a person just handing over a piece of paper to somebody else, that there's something for the eye to follow at all times. Yeah. What Lynn did, what Lynn wrote, is a masterpiece. Yeah. On its own standalone. Mm -hmm. When you layer on Tommy Kale's directing, Andy Blankenbuehler's choreography, Howell Binkley's lighting, Paul Taswell's costumes, Nevin Steinberg's sound design, like all of the work from every side is a masterpiece. And that is like the kernel of what I think makes me different as an event planner, mm-hmm. because I really approach events like Broadway shows. No two are the same. Every client is a different story. And so every client requires a different team. 
in the same way that when Hamilton comes into your office and you're Jeffrey Seller, you say, okay, who's producing this? If you think of a title page of a Broadway show, mm -hmm. when you look at a wedding invitation, the money's at the top. The money's at the top. Yeah. Okay. So the parents, Mr. and Mrs. <laughs> Dr. and Mrs. Uh -huh. uh, you know, David Steinberg. Right. Invite you to the wedding of their daughter. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The money's at the top. It's the same as a Broadway title page. Yeah, yeah. The money's at the top. So if the money's at the top, that, there's your client. And then I like to think of myself as like executive producer. Okay. So we're clear about where the money's coming from, mm -hmm. but someone has hired me to produce a show for them. Then I go and I listen. I listen to their story. I listen to the bride and groom. I listen to the client if it's a birthday, the couple if it's an anniversary, the producers if it's a premiere. And then once I know what the show is, right. once I know what the story is, then I start to think like, who's right for this? Who's my team? Ah, okay. Who are the best people to bring this to life? Who's the best designer? I work with David Beam all the time. Yeah. I work with Christina Matucci at David Beam every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> We're like Betty Comden and Adolph Green. <laughs> we just totally get each other. We work in the same way. We finish each other's sentences. She knows what I'm thinking. You know, it's like symbiosis. But even given that relationship, David, as miraculous as he is, it's not the same writer for every musical, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. The story has to tell you who the team should be. So as things come in, I really go, I think, okay, who should this be? Who should this be? And then I go to the clients and I say, this is what I think. And sometimes the client comes to you and they say, no, this is the caterer we've hired. We've already done. Oh, wow. Okay. So sometimes a show like Hamilton comes with Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote and, you know, did the music and lyrics. Yeah. Tommy Kale is directing. You know, sometimes a show comes to you with people attached, mm -hmm. just like an event. And sometimes you have to put that team together. You know, there are planners out there, and this is not to discredit them because I get it. When you have a groove with a creative team, mm -hmm. there's something that makes producing a large party and a lot of large parties at the same time easier if it's the same offices that you're calling all the time. Sure. Develop a language. You develop a language. You develop a way of working. You, you know how things are going to go because you've done it a lot. So I understand why some planners work with the same people over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And I have certainly worked with a lot of people like David Beam's team a lot. Mm. But effectively, what I think is the way that I most love to work is to figure out who needs to tell the story, who needs to be a part of the team that tells the story. And then we start working from the beginning. Your invitation is your overture. Wow. The best overtures, Gypsy, is the best overture in Broadway history. Not what's that, sir? No, it's Gypsy. I mean, go listen to it tonight. It's the best. Bum, 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 like from the minute. Yeah, that's true. A great overture makes a contract with an audience. It tells you what you're about to experience for the next two and a half hours. And that's what an invitation is. It's an overture. You know, if you get your save today eight months mm -hmm. out, that piece of paper should tell you or allude to where you're going to go over the next eight months. So when you arrive on property, when you arrive to the venue, when you walk in, it should make sense. You should already know what's coming so that you've begun your storytelling from the very beginning. And then throughout the evening, you're sort of building a party the way you build a show. Yeah. You're, you're building to that 
late night, you know, 11th hour number, mm -hmm. which in the case of Hamilton was a 15 minute fireworks show over the Hudson River to a score that was basically conceived by Lin-Manuel, but mixed by a DJ that I had hired to mix it for him. So Lin-Manuel said, this is what I want. Yeah. And DJ Tucky Brown put it all together. So we hired the company that Pyro Spectaculars by Sousa that does Macy's. Oh, wow. We did a 15-minute show, which is a long fireworks That's show. That's a long fireworks show. And fully scored by Lynn, mixed by this DJ. And then as soon as the fireworks ended, we had snuck the roots on stage while everybody was out on the pier. So as soon as the fireworks ended, the roots came through the PA system and brought everybody back inside and then did what was supposed to be a 45-minute set and ended up being an hour and a half long set, legendary set. Wow. That took us through almost to the end of the party. But you know, that fireworks show is the, that's your 11th hour number. And then after that, it's your closing number. You're leaving the theater and the orchestra's doing that playoff. Yeah. Whether that's the couple leaving and it's a shower of sparklers. And then everybody, as they're getting in their car, you're handing everybody warm cookies in a bag, or they're getting just fried waffles, or they're getting, you know, whatever it is, like you're working on them till the last second. And it was so exciting because, you know, that whole night at the theater, we did the red carpet. And we broke that down while the party had been being put together the whole day. And then, you know, around eight o'clock, I'm on the phone with the pyro people and the barge is leaving the dock in Brooklyn and we have it timed to arrive out off in the Hudson. The barge with the fireworks. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're having updates. Oh, we're going, we're crossing the tip of the island. We're just passing Brookville <laughs> Place. Then we're, you know, we're coming up and then we're here, we're ready. And then the interesting thing about a fireworks show is that you have to coordinate with the FAA and Homeland Security, NYPD, NYFD, like, whoa, yeah. Oh, and the FAA because of airplanes, like everyone knows it's happening. There's a moment you make one final call. And once you, <laughs> once you set that in motion, you really can't stop. There's a moment after which they say, they look at you and they say, are we good? And you say, yes, go. You're standing there with your headset on there, 59, 58, 57, 56. We're pushing everyone out onto the pier. It's a really exhilarating thing. I really want to do it again. That day started with the red carpet. I mean, how long was that day for you? That one wasn't that bad. That was like a 6 a.m. arrival to get the routes set up. So I was in mm -hmm. at 6 a.m. And I think I left at 2 a.m., 2, 3 a.m. That's normal for event planners. But you're talking a 20-hour 20, a 20 day. Yeah. The hardest one was Hamilton Tony because the night before Hamilton Tony's was the Pulse shooting in Orlando. Oh, so wow. I woke up to five calls from my security team who had already been on the phone with Homeland Security, the FBI, NYPD. They had already added the show and the party to like the chatter watch list. Wow. And like on the dark net so that if anyone was talking about it, they were watching. This is like the FBI? Yeah. And Homeland Security. It's why you hire good security, like really great security teams, because they have access to all of those people. And so Bobby Rehill at Noble Security had already been on the phone with all of them by the time I woke up at like five in the morning. Wow. And then we put all new security protocols in place. At one point, it was just going to be like you walked in, you checked in with check-in tech, and then you were welcomed in. After I woke up with Bobby, we did full bag checks. We didn't do pat downs, but we wanted everybody. We did bag checks. We closed the party basically. So once you were in, if you stepped outside to smoke, you still had to stand in an area where we could watch you. So that one, I was on site at 7 a.m. 
and I left the next day at 1130. Oh my God. I love it. 28 hours. And you're thinking, you're making decisions on the spot. Yeah. Because of the way the tavern on the green is structured and because of how much of it we were using. I know it well. Yeah. Yeah. There's no green rooms there. There's no space for anyone to be. Right. So I rented a series of minivans where like throughout the day intermittently, I would break my team to go nap. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, you just can't make it. You know, it's the things that no one talks about, but event planners have to sort of strategize for. It's like, you can't eat junk and, and last for 28 and a half hours. You, you know, you kind of can really, you can eat protein and you can eat vegetables, but if you get into a lot of bread or a lot of sugar, you crash. I remember at about nine o'clock, the Tonys were two hours away from being over. We had a viewing party. So most guests arrived at 5.30 and viewed the Tonys on 72 and 80 inch screens all around the Tavern on the Green Front. So these are the guests for the Hamilton Post? Right. Yes. So everyone who couldn't be at Radio City was at Tavern on the Green watching the Tonys on TV. Then when the Tonys ended at 11, everybody came from the Beacon. Mm-hmm. Then another party started. So it was like one party from 5.30 to 11, and then another party from 11 to 6 a.m. when we ended. We had 750 people on the dance floor at 6 a.m. when we ended that party. Wow. It was Questlove was the DJ, and it was the most legendary DJ set I have ever witnessed. He did not stop. He started at 11 p.m., and he didn't take a break for a minute until 6 a.m. It was a great, that was a great party. In terms of premieres, I don't know if I'll ever outdo that. And that's not about me, that's about that night. Yeah. That was about the story of Hamilton, of what had happened. That Tony night was kind of like an apotheosis in that life of Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that night, everything came together. They won a ton of awards, you know. I think they won 11 Tonys or something? Yeah, the energy, was incredible. And we had food service until 6 a.m. We had like one buffet dinner that started at 5.30 and then snacks that opened and then like movie popcorn stands with movie candy all over. And then at 11, an entirely new menu came out that lasted until 3 a.m. And because you don't wanna feed the people who have been there from 5.30 to 11 the same thing for four hours. Right. So the buffets were cleared and then entirely new cuisine appeared for the next four hours. And then at 3 a.m., we kept some of the buffets open and we moved to a late night menu that lasted all the way until 6 a.m. Just give me an example of what a late night menu would include. Oh, sliders, nachos, grilled cheese. We had these French toast sticks, which were like huge pieces of French toast on a stick. You know, it was all of that like late night comfort food when you've been drinking 5.30 to 3.30 and a half hours. That's a lot of drinks. Yep. And there was a moment, one of my favorite moments, we had this massive setup in the middle of Tavern on the Green with this giant box press and Bentley Meeker had a lighting and sound system that was like from Coachella. (laughs) And we had done a lot of lead work. We had Tavern on the Green go to all of the buildings along Central Park West and let them know what was going to be happening. Mm -hmm. The people who had been problems for them in the past, we sent them gift baskets in advance. We had coordinated with NYPD. I was so smart. Coming because I was like, there's no way we're getting shut down. 
but there's also no way this isn't going to be loud as hell. Yeah. The, the greatest honor you can receive is when a guest wants to go into overtime because it means that you've done your job. Right. That's like winning a Tony Award. And then what you have to do after they say, I want to go into overtime, because you know, it comes with a high. I'm always ready with the number. So I always have it written down so I can quickly say, this is what a half hour costs. This is what an hour costs. And I always say, do a half hour, then let's check in. You never want to lose the high. Mm -hmm. You want to actually end while they're still raging. Right. What happens fast is everybody cumulatively hits a wall, usually. <laughs> one, one person starts to go, then another person, and then all of a sudden your party is dead. You know, usually the guest of honor have left. The bride and groom have left. Guest of honor has left. Right. In rare cases, I did a big landmark 50th birthday party for a big client last year, and they stayed until the end. But again, it was the same thing is you actually, because they were like, no, we, could, we want another two hours. And I'm like, you don't. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Start with 30 minutes. And if at 30 minutes you want more, then let's go for an hour. And I can tell you, almost definitely an hour is going to be enough. And while you're end strong. Yeah, couldn't agree more. You don't ever want to get to the point where the people have burnt out and then it's just a lot of bleary-eyed people holding their shoes and you know their hair is ruined, which is all the signs of a great party. Yeah, exactly. You kind of want security to be escorting people out just as the client realizes they're done. Yeah, yeah. They should happen almost at the same time. Mm -hmm. Because then they leave and they're like, we were strong until the end. They never get to that place where it was like, oh, well, then we were all sitting around, couldn't hold our heads up. You know, people, it's before everybody gets sick, you get everybody out before the, the really bleak stuff starts to happen. But you know, it's that, you know, as I assemble a creative team to sort of come up with how a party is going to look and feel, how the client wants things to look and feel, I'm also bringing in an operations team on the back end. And I bring in heavy hitters for almost every department. And the reason for that is that I write a, a run of show or a production timeline. Mm -hmm. And I write them so that if I got hit by a bus the day before the party, it could run. you could run my party. Yeah. It's all there in black and white, right. every single detail. A, a team of strangers should be able to pick up my paperwork and run my party for me. That's how I like to engineer it. Yeah. But the problem is it doesn't account for anything else. And parties have to be able to modulate because humans will always modulate. Yeah. You can't rush an emotional moment. You can't rush a moment that a bride is having with her father or with her mother. You can't rush a moment that the birthday boy is having with his wife. There are moments that are memories and you have to give them to people. So a team can only adapt fast if they know what's supposed to happen, like the back of their hand. Mm -hmm. You know, so we go over everything with every team. And so when we have to stretch or we have to pull back or sometimes, you know, I have to be available to the client. Mm -hmm. I have to have someone who's the head of operations who's working with the valet team because the valet team needs something. I shouldn't be the one to go down. There. Yeah. I should have someone who's as good as me going down to deal with that. So I'm with mother of the bride, bride, father of the bride. Right. I'm next to them answering their question before they take the breath in to ask it. If you go, I should already be standing next to you. <laughs> like, like, and I don't want you to see me. I just should appear. Or if I see you looking, what are you looking for? And if I, if I look or my team looks and you're looking around and I see your glasses empty, 
someone from my team is already going to get what we knew you had to pop another one in your hand because you should never be going to the bar. Like it's little things like that, but I have to be free to watch them. Yeah. It's an empathic moment. Mm -hmm. My actual skill on site is empathy. I just watch and I feel, you know, I did this 50th birthday party for a big CEO. We were adjusting the whole day because there was terrible wind. It was Memorial Day. The buffets were all lined up on these giant mirrored custom buffets that David Bean built on the inside of the club, uh, their rooftop space, and then everyone was going to eat on the terrace, but it was too windy. It was, you couldn't be out there. So we ended up tossing, literally throwing away these custom buffets. Completely changed the layout, completely changed everything. But we were sitting there and they're in the middle of dinner and I'm watching and I'm looking at the crowd and I walk up to the client and I said, we have to move upstairs earlier. People are already done. They're eating fast. If we make them wait 40 more minutes, which is when dinner was supposed to end, we'll lose them. You can have a schedule, but you also have to be in it and feel it and be smart enough to say, or empathic enough to say, they're done with this. We have to move on because it's a rhythm. And then at the end of the night, you know, we changed so much about that party. And again, you know, it's that greatest compliment thing is if you extend it over time, I know you've had a good time. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the night, I said to the client, as she was getting on the elevator and I was handing her her cell phone, which she had left on the dance floor. <laughs> I said, that was a wild ride today, right? We changed everything. And she was like, well, we really didn't change that much. And I was like, actually, we changed everything. Well, that's the greatest compliment. And she was like, I had literally, I, I know you're right, but I had no idea. That flexibility only comes with preparation. Organization, yeah. And again, it's all about crafting the story, crafting the narrative through the party so that just when they think like, oh, dinner's a, get a little bit too long, we're starting to move upstairs. <laughs> Always riding the edge of the energy keeps parties going. 100%. I love that you use the word empathic because it's, it's one thing to be able to say malleable, you know, I could change on a dime, but empathic literally means that you're feeling what the client is feeling and you're anticipating what the client is feeling. And empathy is a great word. I love empathy. <laughs> it's funny things. It's with everybody, you know, I'll walk up to DJs who I love to work with and I will say things like, it would give me great pleasure if you would move off of this song as quickly <laughs> as possible. Because dance floors are critical, right? If you watch your clients, if you are empathic right. and you're paying yeah. attention, you can see. You know, but you know, it, it, these things should be fun. We're throwing parties. We're not operating on anybody's brain with these things. Sometimes clients have the same stakes stakes for the wedding and the stakes for someone surviving an operation often feel to that <laughs> the same thing. And I don't, I don't judge that. But I think part of the planner's job is also to know that they're, that's where they're at and try and recalibrate them gently through the process. So that by the time we get to the wedding day, you've sort of massaged them into a less high stakes situation, high stakes mentality which is just a lot of subtle little things the whole time. It doesn't work all the time, but when it does, it's nice because then you get people who are really there to go on a journey that day and not like, it's 4.05, why aren't we? You know? <laughs> um, and, it, and again, it's like, you know, sometimes you just want to say, well, I gave you that moment. You were having this beautiful moment. I wanted to give you two more minutes. That's a great gift, seriously. Yeah. 
you know? Event planners truly are like actors, therapists, producers, ballet. We're just a little bit of everything. So we do it all and it's a lot of fun. Ryan Hill, Apotheosis. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure. Let's definitely keep in touch. Absolutely. Okay. Have a great night. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. I told you that was a fascinating journey. You can follow Ryan Hill at Apotheosis Events on Instagram. And as always, you can follow me at Doug Winters, Inc. And check out my new website at DougWintersMusic.com. Please stay safe, stay healthy, wear masks, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye now.